So how do you become a better person? We're going to look at five specific keys from this passage today. And the first key is this. We have to have a biblically informed discernment. And I, I know those are big, gigantic words, so hear me out. Biblically informed discernment. The first key is to be able to discern right from wrong. All right, that's the discernment piece there. The biblically is that we discern right from wrong by looking at the scripture. Now that sounds rather basic. Discern right from wrong, read the scripture, do what it says, don't do what it says not to do, that, that kind of thing. But discerning right from wrong is actually oftentimes complicated. It's not, it's not easy to figure this out. So we're going to take a deeper dive on this point because um, it's hard and it's very timely. And we haven't taken a deep dive like this in a long time, uh, in a long, long time. And so um, we're going to do it today. So what complicates matters is that while there are lines that God has written in the sand, clear lines, sometimes Christians disagree with exactly where that line is. And uh, we could talk about the world disagrees with us too, you know, the, basically the society around us. We're going to focus mostly on the fact that Christians oftentimes disagree with those lines are. So this passage has two lists. And historians uh, call the list, the first list is a vice list and the second list is a virtue list. And they're called that because the New Testament has all kinds of virtue and vice lists. And it's not unique in that. Uh, Greek philosophers of that day had virtue and vice lists. Now they weren't the same, they overlapped in many ways, but they, they weren't the same in the context and the motivations and all of that was very different than a Christian virtue and vice list. But it's just to say this was a way of talking. This was a way of, of laying out some basic information to people back in the first century. So the vice list, that first list, is a list of behaviors that are considered wrong, uh, attitudes that are considered wrong, uh, basic, what Paul is communicating, basic sins. These are sins that, that Paul says, he calls them obvious. Um, and so the second list is a, a list of virtues and that has to do with godly character traits. Specifically, Christian virtues are godly character traits. Now, what I want you to see is that what are in these lists, this is where I'm going with this whole uh, first point, and I'm going to spend a lot more time on this first point. So when we get to it, and we've been in it for a long time, don't think I'm going to treat all the other points the same. I'm not, all right? We're just going to take a deep dive on this particular point. So when, um, when God gives us these lists in the scriptures, they're actually not negotiable. They are his lines in the sand. And there's a reason why. It's not just because I'm telling you this um, or because I'm not aware of the debates on some of these issues. I am, and I'll share that with you in a moment. It's because some commands in the Bible, I understand some commands in the Bible are relative to the particular culture or situation. I mean, there's some things you read in scripture and you go, well, that's not for us today. They're relative to that culture and that situation. And everybody understands, everybody understands that there are some things that are relative to that culture. And so theologians uh, usually call those uh, culturally relative items in the scripture. There are also items in the scripture, and everybody believes this, uh, whether we draw the lines in a different place, there are other items that are, are transculturally normative. That means that item 
What that is saying transcends all cultures and times and situations. All right, there's those two kinds of things. Some commands transcend all cultures, all times. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between what is culturally relative and what is transculturally normative. What was just for that day and what is absolutely for this day. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish. But the items in the works of the flesh are always regarded as sins in the Bible. In all situations, all cultures, remember the, the Bible's written over a period of a couple of thousand years. In all cultures, all times, in all places. All, both covenants, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that's what Testament means. In the New Covenant, considered sins in both. That's an important point that I'll come back to in a moment. Always, these items are always considered sins. Now I'll give you a simple example of culturally relative versus something that's transculturally normative. Culturally relative. In the scripture, it says different things about hairstyles. And it says different things, commands about hairstyles and different things uh, about jewelry, the wearing of jewelry. It says different things in different times, different situations, different places. But what is transculturally normative is that from beginning to end in the Bible, modesty is a virtue. Modesty is considered something that we're supposed to be practicing. That never goes out the window. Uh, it gets interpreted in different plate ways in different places. And sometimes the scripture, which is written to specific people in a specific time, will give a command that means something for them that doesn't mean the same for us. All right. Again, we all do this. There's not, a, there's not a person here who reads the Bible and doesn't do this. And I can tell because I don't see uh, any women right now wearing head coverings. All right. And that's a command that's given in one passage in scripture. All right. So we all, we all can understand that we can all agree on that. Now the items in the viceless in Galatians and the other viceless in the New Testament books, generally speaking, throughout all of church history, have been considered sins at all times, in all places, across denominations, with no exceptions, uh, except the exceptions being groups that were considered throughout history to be heretical, that they had veered from the gospel, that they were teaching something that wasn't the gospel, was some kind of Greek philosophy or some other kind of idea or some kind of even spiritualism type thing, rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what happens. You undermine the Bible's authority when you say, or I say, that a biblical standard is relative to the Bible's culture. We say, well, that's only for then. When the Bible always says it's morally wrong from beginning to end, never making an exception, we undermine biblical authority. Now, this is why this is important. Because if you believe, this is really important here, if you believe that the Bible its standards have to change in order to meet the cultural values, then the Bible can never contradict you or correct you. It can't. It's lost its authority in your life. Jesus called disciples to transcend cultural values whenever the culture's values violate his values. We're called to transcend. This, this is following Jesus 101, all right, is, is like in everything that Jesus says. You're going to be different. You're going to live for me, and that's going to look different 
than everybody else around you who doesn't follow me. And one of the things that the Bible says, um, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Bible is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And he says one of the reasons it's God-breathed or one of its purposes is to correct us. It's, it's to show us the way and show us when we've gotten off the path, when we're going down a path that's going to be disrespectful to God, disrespectful to ourselves, disrespectful to others, damaging to us, our world, whatever. It's there for that very specific thing. But when you start, it, you or me, when we start saying that, that something that the Bible always says is wrong, has to, or the Bible has to meet the cultural values, it has lost the ability to do that. It can't speak into our lives. Now the reason I'm saying this is because, and this is the kind of the more narrow focus of today's uh, message and could have gone in a lot of different directions. But the reason I'm saying this, there are a growing number of influential Christians that are taking three of the items in that vice list, which occur in almost every single vice list. The ones having to do with sexuality. Those vi that vice list is really in four groupings. And the first three have to do with our sexuality. And there are a lot of Christians today, influential Christians, who are taking those items and are arguing that they do not apply to today. And so I want to address that a little bit. Um, unless you've been living in a, uh, in a cave somewhere, or you're only about five years old, so you haven't been able to see the change, <laughs> there has been over the last just five years or so, three to five years in our culture, a sexual revolution that's going on. Another sexual revolution, let's put it that way. And I mean, it's like things are changing really fast. I mean, really, really fast. Laws are changing really, really fast. You read the news and there's clashes going on over the sexual revolution. Um, uh, attitudes are changing really, really fast. A and there are Christians who, quite frankly, want to join the sexual revolution the new sexual revolution. They say that sexual expressions that are prohibited in scripture are okay. And they say it for a variety of reasons. Okay because of grace, okay because, of, um, because they're just for that day, or for whatever. But there's a lot of influential Christians that are saying that. So I want you to look at verse 19, if you would please, Galatians 5. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And so there are people that are saying, these really don't apply to today. Because the term immorality, right there in Galatians 5.19, the, the term that's behind it in the Greek language, um, refers to any sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Always in scripture. That is the meaning of the word. It means sex outside of the covenant of marriage. The, um, uh, these influential leaders I'm talking about and many who follow them say, well, that just doesn't apply to us. And they say, we need to redraw the line. The, the, the line, uh, if you press and you say, what, what is the line? Now, the line is two consenting adults, which coincidentally fits exactly what our culture says. Two consenting adults. But the Bible never veers on this. It never, it never says to consenting adults. It says covenant of marriage, man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. Over and over and again in the Bible, this is the sexual ethic. And it refers constantly back to Genesis chapter two, where the Bible says 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, meaning they have sexual union. That's the context for that. Uh, Jesus refers back to that whenever sexual questions arise in his teaching. The Apostle Paul refers back to that whenever these kinds of questions come up. It becomes a principle that guides all decision-making and shows us where the line is. Now, in addition to that, the Bible also very clearly in both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, clearly speaks about other acts, sexual acts, that are outside and say these are not to be practiced by Christians. Uh, adultery, sex outside of marriage, same-sex sex, group sex. These are, these are just listed uh, over and over again, and it's a standard. It's, it's the line. The line is man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But there's some people that are arguing to change that. And there's several reasons they give, and I think it's really important. And, and I, I could really go on and on with the reasons and kind of speaking to those reasons. Um, but let me just give you three. One is the hypocrisy of Christians. And because of our hypocrisy, a call to humility, we should be humble because we are such, we're such hypocrites. We're, we're hypocrites because we don't keep the sexual standard as Christians. And I'm not saying some Christians. I say there's not a one of us in this room that lives to the high calling that Jesus has called us to sexually. There's not a one of us if we really understand what Jesus is talking about. We have a bad track record at keeping the standard. So there should be, among Christians, great humility. Should not be, you know, looking like this as people because, well, you know the old thing. You got thumb pointing back at yourself or you got no, three fingers pointing back at yourself. Because we have, we have, we have failed miserably over and over again. It's so true. The critique is so true. Even as you read the Bible, some of our greatest biblical heroes, the Bible tells us, gives us accounts of their sexual misdeeds, uh, which are abundant and plenty. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. You and I don't keep the standard well. We ought to be humbled by this reality. But our abundant failures don't give us the right to change the standard. It doesn't give us the right to call something right that the Bible calls wrong. It should make us humble people. It should cause us to be compassionate people. It should cause us to be patient with each other. It's like the passage that I just read. It says, if a brother is caught in sin, those of you who are currently, what it's saying, being led by the Spirit, you should restore that person. And it says, gently. Because that's what humble people do. They care. And they're gentle with people. And so we're fellow broken people with each other. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight uh, tells a story about his grandmother uh, his, that, that I think applies really well to this. His grandmother uh, belonged to a, a, a movement called the Holy Pentecostal Church. And one of the distinctives of the Holy Pentecostal Church is the belief that you can achieve sinless perfection in this life on this side of heaven. That you can achieve that. And that that should be a normal thing. The term that they use is entire sanctification. So most Christians don't believe that. Most Christians believe in sanctification. That we are declared sanctified, which means made holy. That if you're a follower of Jesus here, if you're, you're a believer in Jesus, uh, 
You have been declared holy by Christ through the holy, by God through the holiness of Christ. You've been declared that. And so you are holy before God, but experientially, you, you got a ways to go. We all have a ways to go, all right? But um, this group, and there's been other groups throughout history, believe that you can achieve entire sanctification in this life. Now, McKnight said, I came from a Baptist family. We did not believe in that, and we thought it was a dangerous doctrine. So even as a kid, he was indoctrinated, and I believe in indoctrinating our kids, because the world is indoctrinating our kids. Um, it, he was indoctrinated, and that, that is not good. So one day, he's watching his grandmother. He's at his grandmother's house, and he's watching her t on the phone, listening in on the party line. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know what a party line is, back when I was a kid, pretty young, uh, you shared a line with other families. And so you, you had to pay extra to have a private line. And uh, we had a party line. And so what you do when you have a party line, you can't call someone. Nobody can call you when someone is on the line. So you pick up the phone, they hear a click, and then you hang up, they hear a second click. Uh, so she's on the phone listening on the party line for a long time. And then she hangs up. And then she goes about her things. And a little bit later, a friend calls. She gets on the phone and she proceeds to tell her friend everything that she heard on the party line. And so Scott McKnight goes, I got her. <laughs> and so um, this is the conversation that he recalls. Grandma, do you believe in entire sanctification? Yes, I do. Have you achieved it? Yes, I have for some years now. Grandma, I just heard you gossiping, and gossiping is sin, and that's true. You know, in some of those vice lists, right next to murder, is gossiping, <laughs> all right? Um, <laughs> uh, and gossiping is sin. That means you are not sinless. She said, now Scott, gossiping is a mistake, not a sin, and God looks over mistakes. <laughs> so you can be, you can achieve sinless perfection when you just move the line, right? I'm not saying that people are trying to achieve, you know, sinless perfection. It's just the reality there is a tendency in us to want to move that line to make us feel a little bit more comfortable, um, to, to fit how we think, how we feel, whatever it is. It's just, and it's in all of us. We're always moving lines. Every single one of us is moving lines. Um, so a little bit of that is going on, and let's, let's call it for what it is uh, sometimes. Okay. I just done a little bit more sophisticated than Scott McKnight's grandmother. Um, some of the, uh, a second argument that's used for moving the line is some of the loveliest people you'll ever know don't agree with or live by a Christian sexual morality. And my answer is that it's true. It's true. And my second thing is, so what? Now, Th that sounds a little bit harsh and in your face to say so what, but here's, here's what I'm trying to say by so what. Um, there will always be lovely people who live in ways contrary to God's directives for what's best for our lives because there are no sinless people. There's not a lovely person you'll ever meet who you will never find an area in their life where they don't struggle with sin or where they say a sin is okay. There will never be someone you'll find because nobody is without sin. And there are lovely people. So I have no problem saying, lovely people, absolutely. Bearing the marks of God's image. Experiencing what theologians call common grace. 
But they can be wrong, and they are wrong on this. So the third reason is that Christian standards are oppressive for sexual minorities. So, you know, who really, I mean, if you really get into people's stories, you hear over and over again, I didn't choose my orientation. It goes back as far as I can, I didn't choose my orientation. I didn't choose, you know, to, to whatever it is. And, it doesn't, and I'm not just talking about same-sex orientation. I didn't choose how I express myself sexually, how I want to express myself sexually. It wasn't a choice that I made. But the reality is that Christian sexual standards are, in that term, in, if you want to say oppressive, it's oppressive for everyone, if you want to use that term. Because when you look at the high calling of sexual love within marriage and the sexual purity that Jesus calls us to in mind and heart, what he is calling us to, no one gets what their brokenness desires. No one does. Not a one of us. So here's, I, I could go on uh, on this for a lot longer. We'll, we'll come back to this at various points and from different angles. But here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Some of you I know, because I have some conversations with some of you uh, about some of these kind of issues, um, sometimes by email, sometimes face-to-face. -face. Some of you are struggling where you're going to stand on this. And it's, the, the pressure is it's from the inside of Christianity, but it's also from the outside uh, in all kinds of ways. And the pressure is growing, and the sexual revolution is causing, the present sexual revolution is, is crossing into so many things that that there's a huge battle going on between uh, religious liberty in our country where you get to live by the standards, religious standards that you have, and other forces, uh, and, and it's, it's becoming harder and harder. And the easiest thing is to just, let's just move the line. Um, and I'm not saying that's why people move the line. Sometimes they do for some of the reasons that I've just said here, but that's, that's a reality, the temptation, the, the just the, the, the society, the culture, television shows, everything is, is just, it's like an oppression to move. It's very evangelistic. It's not content with you believe what you want to believe in worldly. It's no, it's we want you to live and believe by our standards. It's everywhere. You see it. If you haven't seen it till now, now that I've mentioned it, it's like, you know, you're going to buy a car, you start seeing that car. You're going to see it everywhere that you turn. So it's everywhere. So if you're in that struggle, I want to ask you, Wherever you're going to land, do it really thoughtfully. I mean, really think this issue through. Because if you land on the side against where the scripture is, it is going to have ramifications on all aspects of your faith. It's going to have ramifications on your family. It's going to have ramifications on your church. It's going to have ramifications in all kinds of areas. And I'm willing to sit down with I mean, if you're really struggling with this, and you say, well, Henry, you, you, you hit some things, but you miss some things. I'm willing to, we can carry on an email conversation. We can go out for coffee, whatever. Um, I'm willing to do that. I'm going to make you work if you want to talk to me. Um, but you're, you're going to have to do more than just hear me. You're going to have to do some dig, deep dives and digging into some things. But I'm willing to carry on that conversation. I have with other people. I'd love to do it with you if that's something that you want to do. Okay. The rest of the points. A lot quicker, but let me, let me review in just different words. The kind of person, if we're trying to become the kind of person that God wants us to be, we're going to have to know right from wrong. We're going to have to know what the wrongs are. We're going to have to seek to avoid those wrongs, and we're going to need to pursue the rights. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a, in a few moments. And 
we're, 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 we're going to allow God's word to contradict us. Our desires, we're going to allow God's word to correct us. We're going to allow God's word to shape how we see things. And we're going to be discipled by Jesus more than we're going to be discipled by Netflix. Or by the news, by Fox News or CNN or any of those outlets. Um, if not, we're not going to become the person that God has called us to be. So, number two, second key is following Jesus on a faith journey. If we're going to grow spiritually, we need to follow Jesus on a faith journey. Now, that's in this passage in a number of ways. Look at verse 16. So I say walk. Walk is a very important word in Scripture, in the New Testament. Very specifically, it's a, it's a word about spiritual growth. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, it's talking about the same thing, different word, led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the Spirit in both verses is Spirit, capital S. Third person of the Trinity. God the Holy Spirit is what, uh, what Paul is talking about here. So walking and being led by the Spirit is, equals following the Spirit. Following the Spirit. And following the Spirit is just another way of saying following Jesus. That's how we follow Jesus today is we follow the Spirit. That's how we follow him. So following implies a journey. And it's a journey where God is leading us. That's why this key is following Jesus on a journey. Uh, Dave Harvey illustrates this journey idea in a really incredible way uh, by describing one of the greatest rescue missions in World War II. It's getting towards the end of the war. Uh, the United States sends hundreds of planes over southern Europe dropping bombs. And if you've read any about these kind of battles and if you've read anything about you know, what these planes are like, they're like flying tin cans. I mean, Bullets pierce them easily. Extremely dangerous things. And so in this raid, literally 500 airmen get shot down. They're dropping bombs. They're going after Nazi uh, supplies. And it's a big blitz. And uh, 500 airmen, most of them land, or I think all of them because of where they were, landed in Yugoslavia. And so that was enemy territory. That was run by the Nazis. They had conquered Yugoslavia. And so most of them, as they're parachuting down, are thinking, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna be to a, a, become a POW. But what they didn't realize was how extensive the rescue mission on the ground was. And so peasants, Slavic peasants, uh, from all over were watching for this. And when they would see a parachute, they would converge on the airmen and they would take them to their home or to places in their towns and farms and barns and places, and they would hide them and feed them and tend to any wounds that they had. And it was just incredible that they had done this. They, they risked their lives, they risked their families' lives in doing this, but they did it by the hundreds. They, they, they got these, these airmen and they brought them back. Now here's the thing, they're still behind enemy lines. They've been rescued, but it's not complete. They've got to get out of enemy territory. It's just a matter of time. The Nazis are going to come through. They're going to, they, they saw them coming down too. They're going to go through and they're going to find uh, most of them, if not, if not just about all of them. And so they needed to get out. And so this is where this operation called Operation Halyard uh, uh, just comes in. And, if, and, and the story is 
pretty complex, but there's this daring mission, secret landing strip, um, this secret evacuation plan that's going on. And amazingly, between the Serbian peasants and Serbian rebel fighters, all 500 airmen were rescued and saved. Just an amazing feat. And so here's what Harvey says. He says, it's a fascinating subplot to the rescue. To travel to the evacuation site, the airmen had to spend several weeks following the Serbian freedom fighters, who alone knew the path to the evacuation site. The men had been saved from their enemy, but the journey had just begun. They'd been saved from their enemy, but the journey had just begun. The story of Operation Halyard sheds light on an important spiritual reality, he says. To be rescued from something sets us on a path towards something. So for the airmen, he writes, it was a journey of survival. For us, in the faith journey, it's a faith journey. The one who saved us is now calling us to walk. It's not done. He's calling us to walk. It's non-negotiable. Though snatched, I think I've got this one, though snatched from spiritual death, we soon discover that the Christian life isn't an arrival, it's an adventure. Christ rescues us, then he points us to the path of following him. If we're going to grow spiritually, we have to get the path of following Jesus on that journey. We don't just like, boom, changed. We, we struggle and we fight and it's a lifelong journey. Here's a third one. Genuine fellowship with other believers. Genuine fellowship with other believers. This is often missed. That's why I read those passages before and after to show that this is all in a relational context. And it underscores a really important principle. While you alone can decide whether you're going to follow Jesus, because following Jesus has to be a personal. Your parents can't do it for you. Somebody can't do it for you. You can't just get baptized. You can't just go through a ritual. You have to choose to follow Jesus. While that's true, you will not follow Jesus alone. It's not an individualistic thing. It can't be. Because what Jesus calls us to and the things that he uses to shape us are other people. You can't say, I'm following Jesus, but you're not doing what he said to do to encourage other believers and to come alongside them and to disciple them and all those kinds of things. So that even if you are just the superhuman, much greater than me and than just about everybody in this room, and you could do it on your own, if you're that superhuman, you're at least not following Jesus because other people need your superhuman strength. They need you. So this is, one of the keys is genuine fellowship with other believers. Number four is fighting the flesh. Fighting the flesh. And so this passage, verses 16 and 17, 24, I'm short on time, so we're not going to look at it, but it talks about conflict. The flesh is in conflict with the spirit in us. We're supposed to crucify the flesh. These are fighting words. We're supposed to be in a fight. The flesh, though, the flesh means that part of our body that has yet, or that part of ourselves that has not yet been redeemed. Okay, so when you read flesh in the Apostle Paul, he's not saying your body. He's not saying your body's bad and you've got to overcome your body. It doesn't mean that. Jesus had a body. <laughs> All right? So it's not your body's bad. The flesh is that part of you, body, soul, spirit, whatever, whatever it is you look at what a full human being is. That part of you that is unredeemed. We live in that tension, the already not yet, right? Um, living in the flesh and living in the spirit. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We live in that tension. So there's a war going on inside of us. And we will not win that war apart from fighting 
It takes an effort, and the Bible is filled. Read, read, just read the Apostle Paul, and there's fighting verses constantly. Fight, fight, fight. You've got to fight. Next week, we're going to be talking about the fight with evil forces in our world, spiritual evil, evil forces. So it takes a certain kind of effort, which leads to the last point, which is a process of becoming. This is a process of becoming. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That doesn't just appear. It's a process. It's fruit. So two big ideas to leave with you here. This is about the life of Jesus being produced in you. Not about you going out and just try harder to be kind. It's about the life of Jesus. Deliberate metaphor. It's fruit. The fruit of being transformed by Jesus. It's something that as we are transformed, what begins to show more in our lives is love and kindness and gentleness and forbearance and all those virtues. So the effort comes in in not expending your energies to just try harder to be kind if you're, if you're struggling with being kind. But the effort goes in to those habits and disciplines and practices that form Jesus in you that form your character, that form these virtues. The way to do what God wants you to do is to become who God wants you to be. That's how it is. You, you, you want personal change, well then you need to become the person who is gonna produce that fruit. And by God's grace, by his power, as we cooperate with him, fighting, putting effort into these habits that shape us going forward, in humility and gentleness, being transformed, loving people, reflecting Christ more and more, that's what we begin to see that happens in our lives. Not comprehensive, there's more that could be said on this, and certainly I covered some things way too quickly. But that's how we grow, spiritually. So let's pray together.